Welcome to Ogle of Lanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollacorn Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Welcome to a version of our Story Archaeology podcasts. Long time no speaky. That's largely been because of my state of health and I really wanted to thank everyone for all the lovely messages, all the support that you've been sending in. It really does make a difference. And one of the ways it's been making a difference is your donations have been helping to set up an alternative recording setup that we are trying out now for the first time. And we're going ahead by new equipment with a, a mic that Isolde can use lying down like a Roman lady reclining on a daybed. Absolutely, and why, why not? For now, we're going to try something a little bit different because one of the things that's become difficult is the deep research that usually goes into our podcast recordings. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes digging, it to use the metaphor, um, and yeah, my spade's broken. <laughs> Only temporarily. <laughs> but it's going to take a little longer. So we're aiming to set up something different today. And then the next podcast, as you're used to getting it, is on its way. But before that, we might also try and answer a few of your questions. Yes, because we do get emails from listeners on a very regular basis and all kinds of questions. So here's an opportunity for that thing that you've never been quite sure about or something we never really explained properly. All the questions you wanted to know about early Irish society and the stories, but were afraid to ask. Yes, yes. So get those (laughs) questions emailed in to us at feedback at storyarchaeology.com. First, here is an audio article from Chris. Well, here goes. I want to try and create a story archaeology experiment, an audio article on the other world. There are so many stories about the other world, this strange and mysterious place that runs parallel to our own world in the old Irish stories. And they all seem to have a coherent, uh, integral connection. There are similarities, but there are differences and they do change and develop over time. But it appears over and over again. Now, I think the questions I'm going to ask are, well, how'd you get there in the first place? There are so many routes. So what are the routes to the other world? How might you find yourself there? And what to expect when you get there? What strange and wondrous things will you see? And what might happen if the other world actually comes into ours? What, what, what are the borders between the two? And what might be the problems of returning if you actually get there? And what's the purpose of the experience? What might be gained through going there? As I said, the idea of the other world changes and develops over time and throughout different stories. And in post-Norman period, it seems to either dwindle or the gates to this marvellous other place become fearful, even hell gates. Or later on, it becomes trivial and fanciful. But it's always there and it's influenced so many stories that are still important to us today. So here goes. Oh yes, and I might even share some stories along the way. You never know. 
So let's enter a cave, walk into a mist, jump into a well, pick up an apple branch, get invited to an unexpected party, take a boat and forget to pack the oars, follow a deer into a forest, get caught in a hailstorm or just go for a stroll in the snow. Now Professor Carey in Time, Space and the Other World defines the other world as being any place inhabited by supernatural beings in itself exhibiting supernatural characteristics. It's a good starting definition, and I'll come back to that later, and I'll put links up later. So let's start with a later hero who's quite famous in Irish uh, mythology, to the point where he's given his own date in the annals. I think it's about 290 AD or something like that. 293, I think. That's from memory. He was supposed to be one of the most important kings in early Ireland. He's known as the Irish Solomon, but he's probably entirely legendary, and that's how I like to tell him. He just went for a walk. Cormac, as all the stories tell, was determined to be a wise and generally good king. And as we know, if you've listened to any of the story archaeology episodes, being a good king or a good good ruler you have to make good judgments. And the trick of always making good judgments is listen to your poets. Don't annoy them. If you remember, we saw what happened in Series 6, Episode 1, uh, The Two Swineherds, which is the origin tale for the, the whole of the Toynbull Corner. They pushed their poet pig keepers, I prefer to think of them as prosperity guarders, into a long and competitive battle which led to total chaos and eventually the entire Toynbull Cunha, the catastrophe which led to the downfall of Connacht and Ulster. So never, never upset your poets. Good rule, that. By Cormac's time, I think in one episode we examined Cormac's glossary and we were looking at some of the poetry that is connected with Cormac, this important fact seems to have been forgotten. At this point, poets are seen as old-fashioned, merely entertainers and really a bit of blah, blah, blah. Nothing to do with justice and truth. And maybe that explains why his visit to the other world had to teach him a lesson. But yes, he just walked into a mist. So this is part of the Etra Cormac, where he goes off to uh, the, the, the land of promise. Well, he is concerned, thinking about his need to, to become a good king, to create good judgments. He goes out for a walk and, yep, he just wanders into a mist. It appears out from nowhere. And there he's met by a young man. Now, this young man is obviously otherworld. We can tell this because he's beautifully dressed, his clothes float around him, and he wears the giveaway golden sandals. Now, golden sandals seem to appear time after time as being... Uh, something that, you know, if you've got golden sandals, you're kind of extra special. Actually, I found a, a, an example of golden sandals in existence uh, from an archaeological site. I can't remember where, but they are basically golden overlays that you tie onto your shoes. Well, that's really kind of high level bling. That's high status bling indeed. There's the other point that in some versions of the story, his feet don't even touch the ground. And that's another good, another kind of giveaway. Well, the young man meets him and offers him a very dangerous, tantalising swap. He offers him an item that will solve the problem entirely, but the price is that he should take his wife and children to the land of promise. So the young man is going to remove Cormac's family. That's a dangerous swap. It's almost testing Cormac to see where his priorities lie. I don't know, mesmerised by the gift, which is a beautiful 
apple branch with silver leaves and golden apples. And it's said that these, the leaves of these apples create such hauntingly be- beautiful music that it, you kind of forget everything. And it's said that anyone who was sick would be made better by hearing the, the sound of this branch being shaken, or that anyone who was troubled would become still. In other words, it's a great big pacifier. It shuts people up. And Cormac decides to take it. I, When I tell the story, I always say that he's so mesmerised by the sound of the bells that he doesn't really understand what he's doing. But maybe he does. This is fine. There's uproar in the court when he goes home. People don't quite understand his uh, decisions. But nevertheless, he shakes the apple branch and that renders them uh, silenced and pacified. After a year, his conscience is beginning to prick him. Or maybe he's just missing his wife and his son and his daughter. One would hope so. And so he decides to make his own journey, and this is a deliberate search for the other world. He wants to get it, get back to the land of promise. Well, again, he finds himself transported in the mist. And here he, he experiences a lot of strangeness. He is shown a series of, series of allegorical scenes. There's a, 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 a roundhouse that's being thatched with feathers, but all the feathers blow away. And he looks at it and goes, well, if I stand and watch this... It's never going to end. He continues on. He sees another scene with uh, a lot of wells and significant numbers of streams that run into them. But eventually he finds himself in a beautiful palace, a great dune, and there he's met by the young man. But this time he recognises that this is in fact Mananan, Mananan MacLear, the getting lost in a mist and the fact that he's here to learn about judgments makes this absolutely clear that earlier this was a story which which uh, focused on the great judge himself mither and mither is a a person a personage whose whose center is at brelay in county longford he's of the land he's he's not of the sea and it seems much more likely that with the subject matter that this is one of the lost stories of mither before the normans decided that his um focus on the law was a bit dangerous you know they wanted their own law not early irish law we we put together two whole episodes on this and i'll put links to them afterwards he's reintroduced to his wife and children they are then transported back to their own time instantly he's given in fact a wonderful gift to take home and this is a great golden cup and it said that this cup will fall to pieces if lies are told I presume it then get, puts itself back together again, otherwise it would be a one-use object, but there's no sense that it's that. It's just that if truths are told, the cup will stay whole, and if somebody tries to lie to him, he gets a good warning. So he's he's learned now that he has to discriminate and listen. That's exactly the sort of message that another world story would give you, is don't upset your poets, keep that keep that traditional path between the the two worlds that lie so close to each other. Keep it open and the land will be prosperous and the king will be wise. Now, Nera, on the other hand, he just walked into a cave. Now, we've covered this story so often that I really don't want to go through it in detail. And anyway, I'll put up episode links to any story I mention. Samhain, it's Crook and Maeve, Alil, all the elite warriors are sitting around sharing stories and generally feasting and getting drunk. And Alil decides he's going to set a test. He's going to give his wonderful sword to anybody who's brave enough to go out into the darkness where an enemy has just been hanged. If anyone dares to go and tie a willow withy around his ankle, Alil will give his golden sword 
Well, Nero pipes up. He probably had too much to drink and he says, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it for the sword and off he goes. And it's pretty dark out there. Well, there's a long adventure where the corpse speaks to him and tells him that he was hung, no, thirsty when he was hung and asks him for a drink of water. And there's a lot of allegorical stories about customs that keep you safe at Halloween and what to do with your house and how to protect your house at night and so forth. But eventually, as he's returned the corpse, he turns and sees the whole of Crocon in flames. It's been attacked and destroyed by a horde of marauding enemies. Well, he follows them into the dark cave until they go through a doorway. And there really is a doorway between the two parts of this particular cave, which did exist. He listens as each one in turn gives a pass, a, a password, a man on the track, and an answer comes back and the track is heavier. He just gives the password and he goes through as well, but doesn't find himself in a deep, dark hole. No, he finds himself in a complete other world. Now, this is one of the best representations of the other world, I think, in any story. It's an entire realm. The sky above is blue, whereas he'd left at sour. Now it's, it's summer with or spring with blossoms on the trees and there are farms and there are fields and there are people going about everyday work just as they would be in summer or early summer in his land. And he meets various people and he gets uh, apprehended by one of the guards of the place and taken to the king. And he's told he won't be allowed to go back, but he will go and work for a woman of this realm who needs help on her farm. And he settles down to work with the woman and eventually they become a, a unit. And uh, it seems as though they have a great affection for each other and he lives there a long time. But he's still worried about what he saw and the the uh, loss of Krokon and his people. And she says, well, in fact, this hasn't happened yet because time doesn't work the same here. But it will happen. It will happen unless you go back and warn your people. And he said, but they won't believe all this. This is amazing. They're not going to believe I've been spending all this time in another world. They'll think I just ran away because I was scared of the corpse or something. And she says, no, no, take back some of this summer blossom. And that's what he does. And when they don't believe him, of course, you know, you haven't been gone long enough to even get to the corpse, let alone tie a withy round its ankle. But he shows them what he's brought back, the flowers and the fruit, and they have to take it as meaningful. And the attack on Crocorn is, is prevented. There is a settlement between the two worlds again. There is equilibrium and things settle down again. And as for Nero, well, he goes back into the other world and, and stays with his new wife. And that's really the end of the story, except it isn't, because from this story, it's connected to part of the greater story about the progenitors of the two great bulls, the white and the brown. So once again, he walks into a mist. He is able to get back, but he's never the same again. He gains a wife, and uh, it's part of a big story. Let's try another story. Finn's favourite way of entering the other world was really just to career around the country, chasing deer or an enemy, any enemy that took his fancy. And he ended up in many strange situations and, well, the other world several times. I think one of my favourite stories and one of the best examples is the Geladaka. In series four, we examined this as a kind of comical Imrov. Now, it starts with Finn sitting on his hunting mound and he's waiting or, I, I don't know, summoning or challenging or provoking adventure. Now, what comes to him is this really weird 
disguised otherworld buckler. I, I mean, he's a, he's a great big giant of a man. He's ugly, he's mean, he's indolent, uncouth, rude, the opposite of noble. And just like the two worlds, they tend to throw up the opposite. So when something comes from the other world to our world, it's it often appears as the opposite of what it is. So um, somebody important from the other world turns up as an ugly lout. And he is a lout. He causes so much trouble. He has a really nasty, ugly horse. And this horse is, well, if a horse could be called a brat, this is a brat horse. Eventually, they've had enough of this horse. Conanwell, who's uh, big and heavy and uh, greedy and has a terrible temper and uh, sharp tongue, he's goaded into getting on the back of the horse and trying to shift it. And the horse just lies down. And eventually, Conan is so fed up of this horse and its behaviour. And just when he's had enough, the horse gets up and races off and makes for the sea with poor Colin hanging on for dear life and screaming that he can't do anything with it. Thirteen men follow on and they all jump onto the back. But the horse makes off and jumps into the sea, disappears, plunges into the water. And finally, one other man grabs hold of the horse's tail. So you can imagine 13 of Finn's men all being carried into the sea with Colin and the others on his back and one poor guy hanging onto the horse's tail for dear life and half drowned. Well, Finn's not one to leave a man behind, so he must follow and rescue his men. Well, they go all over the place and he and Dermot travel on a boat and they, I think at one point they end up in Athens, but they leave because nobody's in which is really interesting. And they travel until they find an island, which is was a good start. And uh, there they separate. And this is part of Diermut's adventure, that he's stuck in an, uh, on an island. And uh, every day he goes hunting. And then this hairy, horrible, he's called a wizard, but it's some strange character appears and they fight like mad. And finally, the uh, strange man leaps down the well and disappears. So on the third night, Diermut leaps after him. So here's his way into the other world. He's jumped into a well. Very good. They will go back and forth. It's a long story. They're never quite sure where they are or how to get back. And there's a whole episode on this anyway, so you can go and look at the whole story. If it has a purpose, it's just to make a really rollicking good story. So there you are. That's three ways of getting to the other world. You've got 13 men on the back of a horse. Um, You've got on the back of an ugly horse at that, you've got jumping into a well and you've got finding yourself on an unknown island where you don't know where you're going. Now, they're lucky they get back, but it's really difficult. And as I say, it's a really good story. I don't think it's trying to teach anything. And don't don't get mixed up with ugly horses. There is another story, which is the Hall of the Quicken Tree, where Finn and his men, they are taken into the other world by an invitation to a feast. Now, they're invited by the King of Lachlan, and that's a giveaway, because the Lachlanoch are usually the Norse, or but they really just mean outsiders, strangers, or that lot from over there, or the ones from not here is probably a better way of looking at it. So they go off to the party, whether it's on an island or whether it's it's often, I think, a palace in the middle of a, a lake or on a, an island in a lake, and it's a beautiful hall. It's a wonderful hall. It's described as a beautiful house having walls of every colour and coverings of every colour on the floor and a fire that gave out a very pleasant smoke. Now, that's a good sign because if you've 
ever visited a roundhouse or been in one of these early houses without the chimney, it's really smoky. But then everything changes and it's noted the biggest changes. It stinks in here. To cut a long story short, they become trapped. Now, they're eventually freed from their imprisonment, which has them all held by invisible bonds. But Colin Whale, he was stuck with his back to the wall and they can't free him. And when they finally do, and he's been causing problems all the way through because of his greed and because of his sharp tongue and his way he keeps attacking Diem and making life difficult for him. But when they finally free him, he's pulled from the wall and he loses the skin of his back, which must be agony. Well, on the way back, uh, Finn tries to help him and finds an old sheepskin, which he claps onto his back, and there it stuck, and there it grew. And never were the fiener in want of woolly hat in winter to keep their heads warm, or woolly socks to keep their feet dry, for all they had to do was shear the wool from the back of Columwale. It's a different way to the land of promise, but again, you have these strangeness, and they have real trouble getting back. They are trapped for a long time. Colin learns a lesson and gains possibly the strangest superpower I've ever come across. When I'm telling this story to children, we talk about all the superheroes, and these are all superhero warriors. Finn and his men, they all have special powers of some kind or another, even if it's only being really, really good at fighting, or hunting, or poetry. But... I don't think I've ever come across any superhero whose special power was growing wool on his back, like a sheep. Now, another of the great heroes who has such a strong connection with the other world is the saviour child Mongorn, who is uh, heralded by Mananan as his own son. There are a few, I think, Middle Irish stories uh, about Mongorn, and uh, one of them is particularly relevant to what we're talking about now, and it's called Mongorn's Frenzy. Now, Mongorn is being bothered by his wife who wants him to tell her a story that he's never related to, a story of an adventure that he had, and he just won't tell it. He makes her wait for seven years before he's ready to tell this story, and she's longing to hear it. Now, finally, he says that the time is right, but he's just about to tell the story when there's a massive hailstorm with such a flood that it's said that the 12 greatest streams, i.e. rivers in Ireland, are created at that point. This seems to be the transition to the other world, and Mongo and his wife and their historian poet are transported to a beautiful house, which is clearly another world house. There he can tell the story to her. Now, the story isn't particularly important here. What seems to be relevant is the fact that this is such an important or dangerous story that they cannot tell it in the mundane world. The only place it can be told is in a place that's set apart. So, once again, it seems as though here the transition is a terrible hailstorm. It's such an important storm that it has an effect on the land which creates new features. But there are some things which are relevant to one world or the other. It's as if he has to retreat to the other world to make it safe to tell that story. Having talked about Mongorm, perhaps we should talk about Bran. Bran is one of the oldest stories to be written down. It's in early Irish, in a way, the original Imrov story, and it does connect closely to Cormac. Because Bran finds the apple branch, it's presented to him by a beautiful young woman, and again he's captivated by this. It's a call to adventure. This is the way I tell the beginning of the story. 
It was just a branch from an apple tree. It lay there beside him on the ground, shining silver in the sea-washed sunlight. Bronze sat up, yawning. He stretched his arms, flexing his fingers. What a dream that had been. The music, sweet, unearthly. It had followed him as he walked alone on the sharp grass dunes. Yes, it was that strange and haunting music. It had always been behind him as he walked. He had been unable to see who was making those thrilling sounds, could not discover where it was coming from. It had entranced his senses like an exotic perfume, made him dizzy, unsteady on his feet. The air was bright, fresh, and he could hear the summer singing of birds above him. The dream was turning to a mist in his head, yet fronds of its perfume still clung about his memory. The music! It made the birdsong sound raucous and harsh. Bran yawned again and stood up. What had he been doing lying down anyway? How had he come to fall asleep on the grass here? Hadn't he been waiting for news? No time to sleep, surely. A fresh wind blew and he shivered suddenly. His head cleared. It hadn't been a dream. The music had been true, had been reality, sending him reeling into sleep. Bran took a step forward and felt something move at his feet. There was an echo of music, like distant bells and a remembrance of subtle perfume. He looked down. The apple branch from his dream was still there, lying on the ground. But it hadn't been a dream. Bran bent down and picked up the branch, turning it over in his hands. It had come from no tree in this world. The bark was silver, but so fine and finished that no smithcraft of his world could have honed it so. Bran gently probed the silver surface with his thumbnail. It yielded to his slow pressure, leaving the crescent of his nail marked on the curve of the twig. Cautiously he scratched at the dent. Flakes of silver bark fell to the ground, and the wood was a soft, dull silver underneath. Carefully, he stroked one of the shining leaves. It flexed at his touch. He admired the veining, patterning, the spearhead shape, and allowed his finger to brush the edge serrations. Oh, such making was beyond all craft of man. And the blossoms. The branch had been taken from a tree in bloom. Gently he pinched one of the blushing white flowers. It bruised beneath his fingers. Ron shook his head in disbelief. No crafter in silver, however talented, could have grafted living flowers from metal. Bran carefully shook the bright branch, wondering if the petals would fall, and the haunting strains of remembered music danced around him for a moment, and he felt the power of the perfume mazing his mind again, leaving him quiescent and wondering. It is a gift, thought Bran to himself. A great gift from the other world. He gently shook the branch again, and this time he thought he heard the words sung to the rhythm of the silver-leaf music. A branch of the apple tree from Arwen I bring. Like those one knows, twigs of white silver are on it, crystal brows with blossoms. Bran walked back to the fort deep in thought. This gift from the other world might be a two-edged sword. The ever-living ones gave nothing without purpose. Such gifts heralded change, maybe even trouble. Yet the silver branch he held in his hands was a wonder. It called to him, drew him towards its secrets. He knew that he could not cast it away. Bran looked up and smiled. 
taking in the tang of the salt air on the breeze. There was a new spring to his stride. This was no dream. He was ready for the adventure that lay before him. So his route to the other world is more deliberate. He seeks to leave Ireland and go searching just that bit farther, over the sea and far away. But then he's been called, tempted, taunted, summoned, just like Cormac with the beautiful apple branch. And the music of its trembling silver leaves is haunting him with a nostalgia for something that he's not yet known. It's as if he's become nostalgic for his own future. And on the way, the stranger that he meets out on the sea is Malanan, the man from over the seas who calls him to herald the coming birth of the warrior poet Mongorn, energetically begot. And after that, of course, are inspired all the monks and men from Malduin to the Ikora who set out on Imrova journeys to emulate Bran, finding many and wonderful islands and having incredible adventures. However, there is a story that I don't think we've covered anywhere, and yet it's possibly the best known of the journeys to the other world, and that's the story of how Oshin was drawn to Tirnanog. Dealing with the Fenian stories is difficult because uh, the, the, they were written down very late and the body of work is kind of complex. You have to delve your way through the, the Ogle of Nishinorak or or the Silver Gedelica, and the material is muddled, to say the least. And so often I'm very grateful to Lady Gregory in Gods and Fighting Men, who sorted it out and wrote some of it down. And was it was certainly my first introduction to the stories, was reading Lady Gregory many, many years ago. And she does give her authorities. So maybe what I'll do is I'll read her version of The Call of Oshin. It goes like this. One misty morning, what were left of the Fianna were gathered together with Finn, and it is sorrowful and downhearted they were after the loss of so many of their comrades. This is one of the later stories that takes place after a great battle. And they went hunting, where the bushes were in blossom and the birds were singing, and they were waking up the deer that were as joyful as the leaves of a tree in summer. And it was not long till they saw coming towards them from the west a beautiful young woman riding on a very fast and slender white horse. A queen's crown she had on her head and a dark cloak of silk down to the ground, having stars of red gold on it, and her eyes were blue and clear as the dew on the grass, and a gold ring hanging down from every lock of her hair, and her cheeks redder than the rose and her skin whiter than the swan upon the wave, and her lips as sweet as honey that was mixed with red wine. And in her hand she was holding a bridle, having a golden bit, and there was a saddle worked with red gold under her. And as to the horse he had a wide, smooth cloak over him, and a silver crown on the back of his head, and he was shod in shining gold. And she came to where Finn was, and she spoke with a kind and gentle voice, and she said, It is long my journey was, King of the Fianna. And Finn asked who she was, and what was her country, and the cause of her coming. Neve of the golden hair is my name, she said, and I have a name beyond all the women in the world, for I am the daughter of the king of the country of the young. What was it brought you to us over the sea, queen, said Finn? Is it that your husband is gone from you, or what is the trouble that is on you? Oh, my husband is not gone from me, she said, for I never yet went to any man. 
But, O oh, King of the Fianna, she said, I have given my love and affection to your own son, Oshin of the Strong Hands. Why did you give your love to him, beyond all the troops of high princes that are under the sun, said Finn? It was by reason of his great name and of the report I heard of his bravery and of his comeliness, she said, and though there is many a king's son and high prince gave me his love, I never consented to any till I set my love on Oshin. And when Oshin heard what she was saying, there was not a limb of his body that was not in love with beautiful Neve, and he took her hand in his hand and he said, A true welcome before you to this country, young queen. It is you are the shining one, he said. It is you that are the nicest and comeliest. It is you that are better to me than other women. It is you that are my star and my choice beyond the women of the entire world. I will put upon you the bonds of a true hero, said Neve then, you to come away with me now to the country of the young. And this is what she said. It is the country that is most delightful of all that are under the sun. The trees are stooping down with fruit, with leaves and with blossom. Honey and wine are plentiful there, and everything the eye has ever seen, no wasting will come upon you with the wasting away of time. You will never see death nor lessening. You will get feasts, playing and drinking. You will get sweet music on the strings. You will get silver and gold and many jewels. You will get, and no lie in it, a hundred swords, a hundred cloaks of the dearest silk, a hundred horses, the quickest in battle, a hundred willing hounds. You will get the royal crown of the king of the young that he never gave to anyone under the sun. It will be a, it will be a shelter to you night and day in every rough fight and every battle. You will get a right suit of armour, a sword, golden-hilted, apt for striking. No one that ever saw it got away from it. A hundred coats of armour and shirts of satin, a hundred cows and a hundred calves, a hundred sheep having golden fleeces, a hundred jewels that are not of this world, a hundred glad young girls shining like the sun, their voices sweeter than the music of birds, a hundred armed men strong in battle, apt at feats waiting on you, if you will come with me to the country of the young. You will get everything I have said to you, and delights beyond them, that I have no leave to tell you. You will get beauty, strength, and power, and I myself will be with you as a wife. And after she had made that song, Ashin said, O oh, pleasant golden-haired queen, you are my choice beyond the women of the world, and I will go with you willingly, he said. And with that he kissed Finn his father, and bade him farewell, and to the rest of the Fianna, and he went up then on the horse with Neve. And the horse set out gladly, and when he came to the strand he shook himself, he neighed three times, and then he made for the sea. And when Finn and the Fianna saw Oshin facing the wide sea, they gave three great sorrowful shouts. And as to Finn he said, It is my grief to see you going from me, and I without a hope, he said, ever to see you coming back to me again. And we all know what happened to Oshin, how he became weary of his life of ease and pleasure, and how he desperately wished to be back with his father's people again, and the Fianna. He missed it all. How he went against Neve's uh, warnings and went back, but found that hundreds of years were passed and all his people were gone. And when he touched his own soil, he withered and eventually, after meeting St. Patrick, died. 
Now, when I first read these stories, I didn't like the story of Neve and Oshin. It was the kind of story that when I was a child, I might have put my fingers in my ears and gone la 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 so as not to hear it. I just hated the way that Neve seemed to be dragging Oshin away from everything he knew, from away from the active, lively, crazy fun of Finn's world into what seemed to me an existence without purpose. I once tried to create a piece of multimedia artwork based on broken pieces of mirror, which were quite fun to work with, and they, for me, represented the fracturing of time. A central ceramic plaque in the middle represented Neve and Ushin. But when I completed it, I realised that what I'd done was portrayed Ushin as a drowned corpse. It still hangs in my bathroom. It's hard to photograph being mirror, but I'll try. See what you think. At least I do know now that Neve and Ushin is a fairly recent story, at least in written form. I wanted to look at uh, those two stories, The Voyage of Bran and Oshin and Neve. We've got a pair of narratives, one very early and one written down far more recently, um, possibly not until the 18th century in the form that we have it today. But that's not unusual for the Fenian stuff. Superficially, they have a lot in common, but they do differ in outcome and in mood. Both journeys are initiated with the appearance of another world woman offering tempting promises, and Bran is drawn by the beautiful apple branch, but he does get to choose for himself. He gets himself a boat, a crew, and takes to the sea. He initiates that part himself. Oshin is effectively seduced. It's kind of not his fault. Once he mounts Neve's horse, his court is set by her. Mind you, in Lady Gregory's telling, Oshin is also tempted with finely honed weapons and good hunting, which would have suited him a lot better. And both stories are redolent with yearning, longing and deep nostalgia. The big difference, I think, is that in the early story, Bran, Bran looked forward, yearning for what is to come for him. He records his adventure, but he doesn't look back. Oshin, on the other hand, ends up yearning for the lost world of his own past. But he can't turn the clock back. Uh, he lives in a world where the arrow of time only goes one way, as we do. And this is hardly surprising, I think, in such a late retelling of this ancient theme. By the time this story was written down, so much of Irish culture was becoming devalued, disregarded and left to the past and almost seen as backwards, particularly by English scholars. Yet there are many stories, I think, where there's little separation between two parallel worlds. Of course, there's Moitura, which is a whole of series two. And there, uh, the main characters, Nurda, the Dagda, etc., etc., they have their strongholds and homesteads firmly located in the mundane landscape, in the world that which the story is being told, which is effectively our world. There's no separation between the two worlds. And they freely interact with clearly human counterparts. However, this doesn't prevent them from making use of their own special stuff, their equipment and their abilities. The Dugda has his magical harp and his boundary-tracking club. Dian Kecht is able to build a fully working hand of silver, as well as, of course, the way he creates a healing well, which is so marvellous that in injured warriors almost on the point of death can be dipped and so on. In the first part of Tokvark Edina, the other world characters are just part of the mundane world, whether it's Fumnok or uh, the Dugda. They're all just doing ordinary things to help out this lovesick mother. They can be recognised by their magnificent clothes, of course, as I've mentioned, golden shoes and stuff like that. 
And of course, they have special stuff. Mithras cranes of inhospitality come to mind. But in the second part of Tokvark Edina, everything is altered. It's set a thousand years later, and the world is very different. Now, if this were a tale by Professor Tolkien, I'd say that we've moved from the age of elves to the age of men. Mither, as he seeks to win the second Aideen, and if you listen to the three episodes on Mither and Aideen, you'll know that uh, that she was turned into a purple fly by Formnot Mither's understandable, jealous first wife, and then driven away in a storm for a thousand years, only to fall into the golden cup of Etta's wife, get swallowed and born again as the second Aideen. That's where we referred to that episode as the reborn identity. Yeah, I know, it makes even a Stephen Moffat Doctor Who episode sound simplistic. But as I was saying, when Mither seeks to woo and win the second Aideen, he presents as a very mysterious and a very magical character. He's so different. I mean, for a start, he can apparate at will and he doesn't even have to use a chimney flue. Guards and locks are utterly irrelevant. He can't be kept out, whatever they do. He dresses extremely impressively and has a magnificent fiddle board. And the wages he offers Jokid for the fiddle game are a bit of a giveaway. I mean, they're lavish, but extremely strange. One part of the wager even includes three-headed sheep, and that's not the sort of animal generally seen among Irish flocks, well, at least not as I've noticed. When Jokid takes advantage of the stranger and then demands some really difficult tasks for winning the game, like rushes over Tethford, stones taken out of the Plain of Meath, or even trees over Brefni, and I don't think he meant the Sitka Spruce. He also includes a really important task, which is the creation of a causeway over Moyne Lovriga. Now, this is probably Corlay near Longford, and we talk a lot about that in one of the episodes. Now, this last task is so difficult that Mither can only achieve it using otherworld power. This is dangerous and extremely difficult for him. Now, remember earlier on I was talking about the frenzy of Mongorn and the story he could not tell unless he took his wife into the other world, which was difficult enough. The trouble is that Mither has to take, undertake an otherworld task in this world. And it's really difficult. It's an act that doesn't belong here. And that's why he mustn't be watched by anyone. It's too dangerous. I'm not sure whether it's too dangerous for him or for Yogurt's people or both. There are other stories where craftsmen want to seek to protect their skills from prying eyes and so forth. Now, Govnu in Moitura, he's not too keen on spies. But I don't think this is the same. He's not just guarding craft secrets here. And the anguish in the powerful poetry that describes his action tells a much deeper and darker story. And yet, in the first part of the same story, Tokvark Edna, the Dagda undertakes similar tasks as part of the bride price for the first Aideen, and no one's at all bothered or surprised by it. There's one more significant detail. When Mither appears in Jokud's court, the king demands to know who he is. And he replies something really interesting. He says, my name is not known. It seems that even the great otherworld character Mither has been forgotten. 
Now, I haven't included the part where Mither embraces the second Aideen and they fly away in the shape of swans. And I think this is because the animal and human shape interchange is present in a lot of stories all along, whether they're early or late, whichever, whether they're still part of the non-separation of the two worlds or whether later when the two worlds are completely separated. White birds are, of course, a favourite. They appear in lots of stories, including the lovesickness of Cucullan. But the last point, I think, which is really significant is that the Aiden and Mither story ends with the digging up of the she-mounds and a continuing enmity between the worlds. I think it's a really important difference. There is another later story, sort of post-Norman, that begins in almost the same way as Mither and Aideen. And this is the house of the fosterage of the two pales, if I can pronounce it properly, Ultrav Tigger do Feather. In this story, Mither is he's definitely replaced by Mananan now, but Mananan sets out to undermine early Irish societal structure, upsets Oingus really badly, and generally acts disgracefully. However, there are clues. At this point, he's described as organising the Daedonan and distributing ancient mounds as places where they live now. They're going to have to move underground, no longer part of the ordinary world. What he's referring to are the Neolithic mounds and structures, Neolithic, early Bronze Age, they're dotted all over the Irish Irish landscape. From now on, he says, they will live underground, and he explains that they can make beautiful hidden houses there, hidden away in the hollow hills. So it becomes a kind of familiar phrase there. There's something else. He gives the tradition that they, the Dodonan, are fallen angels, not exactly bad enough for hell, they didn't fall far enough, but they they're on earth now, and therefore, because they are not human, they're not subject to God's law, i.e. normal law. So basically, they're not part of our world anymore. And so they dwindle and are separated from our world, becoming the stuff of folklore rather than mythology, the source of ancient gold from hidden treasure hoards. And I also think from that point, they're never full friends, half friends at best. They may be the source of great gifts, even wisdom and unexpected insight, but they're never again wholly trusted, as likely to play tricks as to offer treats. So, the other world, what was it and what did it represent before this post-Norman guilt separated and devalued it? Well, it was never the world of the dead though you might meet ancestors and past heroes and friends there, but since time ran differently between the two worlds, fluent and malleable, it doesn't really, it's not significant. You might indeed, I suppose, cross over and live there eternally young and in harmony with the, every, in harmony with the world. It wouldn't be a reward for virtue, as it were, for goodness in the Christian sense. It might be a reward for determination and bravery, but it would be nothing to do with judgment. The two worlds were seen as concurrent rather than serial. The other world might be all around you, though there were likely crossing places, portals. Archaeology suggests that this is where people left gifts for the genie loki of these portal crossing places. But extant story texts don't really reflect this very much. I find that interesting. Of course, you might not come back. Generally, time does run one way in our world. And the laws of the observable world might be different there. You might be able to use gifts given to you from that world, but they might not work in the way that you expect them to. 
So where does that leave us? Well, a couple of years back, I was struggling with a really long article I extravagantly called Underworld, Otherworld. Now, I love mythology. I think that's probably clear. I really love the story of Gilgamesh, the light-hearted folktales of the ancient Egyptians. I even love the grim determination of the Hittites to identify the names of every annoying storm god of the Middle Eastern world, just so they can keep out of their way. But in writing that article, I found myself struggling in a sort of morass of vengeful gods and miserable underworlds of dust and darkness and not a pretty sight. And even in those mythologies, it isn't too long before the concept of judgment by a supreme and generally arbitrary agency gets incorporated. And after that, it's a long story of spells and tricks to outwit this annoying and uh, difficult judge. The Irish Otherworld is so different. Now, there is, I have to admit, little direct connection between the continental Celts of 2nd century Gaul and early Irish culture, but there are reports from an early Greek tourist, one Pausanias. Now, he said that the 2nd century Celts were so sure of continuity between their mundane world and the concurrent other world that IOUs could be repaid in that world. Well, that's what they told him, but of course they could have been trying to tap him for a loan. I don't know. So what have tales of this other world really given to us? I think there have been times in the past when these portals, these dangerous crossing places, have been sought out, and other times when they've been shunned. I was thinking about those half-mad, half-visionary monks on their lonely island eeries who set out on voyages for isles blessed by hairy hermits or prophesying saints. But on their journeys to find the Isles of the Blessed, they encountered wonders and mysteries no less strange than those of Cormac or Nera. Some have become terrifying, such as tales of changelings where human babies are stolen and swapped by withered inhuman things. And the people of the other world, well, I suppose at times they've been portrayed as noble lords and others demonic tempters and perhaps worst of all as diminutive imps turning milk sour, disturbing dreams and generally in need of placation. You know the, oh yes, I have seen Queen Mab has been with you from Romeo and Juliet, which is probably better than peas blossom and mustard seed. But I suppose the worst incarnation is the modern leprechaun. And if you want to know where I think he came from, you can listen to the episode of Crocovold Cobblers. I think the connection with the rainbow must be just clutching at some forlorn hope. But nowadays, the characters of the other world seem to have been co-opted by D&D and video games, and at least have they've recovered their power and stature. And you know, I was thinking about it, maybe Tolkien, though he, like other English academics of his period, tended to ignore Irish mythology, I find in him signs that he really knew the stories. Even his very, very early war god, which he dropped very quickly, was called Maka, which I think is interesting and indicative. But even the wardrobe, much beloved of readers of C.S. Lewis, well, it's a familiar, very familiar otherworld entrance, isn't it? And of course, you've got the most recent Star Wars film, you know, The Last Jedi, and they chose to set part of its story on that Isle of Imrava, Skellig Michael. I want to look at the concept of the Irish other world in another way. I think it's relevant and current in everyday life. I think it's much in common with the dichotomy of mundane life and memory. And funny enough, I've been working on a project recently where I'm looking at memory and my, my story image behind the project is the Voyage of Bran. 
memory is not subject to time's arrow. Old memories can be as vivid as recent ones. And I think there are even times when anticipating or speculating what might happen can be experienced almost like remembering the future. Memories can come upon you powerfully and suddenly. It can either be it can either bring pleasure, pain or shock, but it can also be overwhelming and debilitating. Memories can feel a part of you, but you can feel disassociated from them as if almost as if they're remembering you. And of course, it's only too easy to remember things that actually never happened. Our memories are strange and mysterious other worlds. And yes, they lie concurrent to our everyday lives. And of course, there's the world of memories and the world of dreams. They're not so far apart. Where would we be without that other world of the imagination? I mean, where would painters and poets be? I mean, where would any of us be? In Brisbane, a few years ago, I came across an exhibition by a modern painter called William Robinson. Now, some of his landscapes just shocked me. They were thrillingly beautiful. I sat and looked at them for hours. I think it was because he'd sought to include not just space and colour and light in his work, but time depths had been woven into the composition. I found them deep and moving. He seemed to have captured the concept of this world and the other world in one canvas. And if I can find an image of one of the paintings, I mean, I'll attach it to the uh, article. Now, I want to be indulgent. I want to finish this article with a personal story. You can turn it off if you don't want to hear it. But a few Januarys ago, I was in a small skiing resort up in the French Alps. And before you get the idea that I generally take winter skiing holidays, this was a once-in-a-lifetime family event. Uh, there were ten of us from Ireland, England, Wales and Australia. We all managed somehow to get a week together. We just chose to take that week in the French Alps. It was a tiny village high in the pine-fringed mountains and there wasn't a car, not a road in sight. I loved it. But I didn't ski. I wasn't skiing. I was looking after my granddaughter during the day and then in the evening I would disappear and go for walks on my own. I would always try and go for a walk just as it was getting dark, just as the sort of yellow lights of the village began to dapple the snow into vibrancy under a sort of star-spattered star sky. I can use the word magical. But one night when I was walking back to the chalet across the, along the high narrow paths of the village, suddenly it was as if the whole path in front of me just shone out as if the snow had been illuminated from below. But it was only the moon. So I looked up and the full moon was rising over the mountain ridge, racing ragged clouds across the sky. But then suddenly my perception altered and I wasn't staring at the moon in the sky. I was contemplating an immense and distant world, a huge map, if you like, like of silver continents and strange wild and distant seas over which this moon ship sailed serenely. It was both disconcerting and entrancing, and I watched it for a long time until the moon went behind a cloud. Now, I became aware that every so often people would pass me as I stood staring upwards, seemingly at nothing. Some of them looked up briefly, but they didn't stop. I mean, I was only watching the full moon in a cloudy sky. But for me, that night, I'd caught a glimpse of Bran's apple branch. I'd smelled the blossom, I'd heard the sound of it, and I won't forget it. And perhaps that's why I find the stories of the Irish Otherworld so attractive. But yeah, I still feel sorry for Oshin, though. And if I want to make that journey, I want to choose it for myself. And what's more, I want to make the transition with my eyes wide open. Well, I hope you've enjoyed, shall we say, my audio article. 
I know it's not the same without Isolde, but it's an experiment and we'll see what you think. And in a way, it was a chance to look at themes that I've been wanting to do for ages in the form of an article. And this seemed as good a way to do it as any. So thank you very much for listening if you've managed to get to the end. And we'll be back soon with a Q&A and hopefully very soon, soon as possible, we'll get back to circling the toy. Thank you for listening to Agalath Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Obolacorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.